Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Anything But Typical podcast. And I'm grinning and I'm wearing my F3, one of my F3 shirts. <laughs> if you don't know anything about F3, at the beginning of this podcast, I, I guarantee you, you're going to hear a lot about it. And it's so cool, man. It's infectious. Um, so we've got the founder of that, among other things, David Redding joining us today and i'm so glad that we get to hear more of his story and i know i'm going to learn even more even though i know some of your story i've had just tell it a couple times but david here's the situation so we always like starting with a heartbeat question you're in public and so rather than the scenario of you're walking across the street to the courthouse to litigate a, a case or you're walking in the dark of the morning the gloom to the next F3 workout with a bunch of guys. The scenario is this, you are walking across the parking lot at your country club and somebody is talking about you. They see you, they don't realize that you can hear every word they're saying. What is it that you would like somebody saying about you, David? I would love to hear them say that uh, I was an asset that in whatever situation they saw me in, uh, that I added value to it and I helped other people get better at what they were trying to do. That would be the ultimate praise in my years. That's, that's what I try to do as a parent, as a husband, as a lawyer, as a friend, as uh, a guy who founded F3. Um, that's, that's, that's my goal. So that, that would be what I would love to hear. Well, it rings true to me. It's been true to my experience. So thank you for that. Um, ben, I know you've, you're itching to get into more of his story. So take it away. Yeah, of course. So give all the listeners a, a quick little background, then we'll dive into the story. So David's a partner at TLG Law. He's a founding member and former uh, CEO of F3, like, like Gary already mentioned. And David is a U.S. Army veteran where he was in the infantry, infantry and spe- special forces. So, David, I want to start there uh, and see if we can go a little bit chronological here. But what led you to joining the Army? Uh, well, a happy accident. Uh, so I was a sophomore in college, and my father called me up one day and said, uh, look, I've got a business problem, and um, I'm not going to be able to pay for you to go to college after this year. So it was, it was late in my sophomore year. So uh, I hung up the phone and I was sitting in my apartment that I was renting with another guy. And I happened to look down on the coffee table that we had in the den. And uh, there was a a postcard from the ROTC department at the college where we were both students. It's actually addressed to my roommate, not to me, ironically, but it's essentially said, if you have a pulse and and you can't pay your college tuition, you may want to come see us. Because this was 1983 and Ben, you're not going to, uh, be aware of this other than history books, but Ronald Reagan was building up the military. We had, uh, we're still in the cold war and, uh, Ronald Reagan had decided to outspend the Soviet union. And we'd come out of this kind of period of dissipation of our military where, uh, we had really become a, a non-lethal force. It was post Vietnam. Um, we had a lot of drug problems in the military, uh, we'd gotten rid of the draft. It was just not a great time to join the military. So here's Ronald Reagan trying to build it up, putting a lot of money into it at the same time as it could not have been held in lower esteem. So, you know, today we more or less think of the military and have for quite a while, 20 or 30 years as a great institution. In fact, uh, military uh, generally scores higher in public opinion polls as to uh, institutions in, uh, in the regard in which they're held. But that was not true in 1983. Nonetheless, uh, I didn't have much choice. Uh, I couldn't afford to pay for my own college and my father couldn't do it. And uh, so I went down and saw, saw the uh, recruiter and I walked in. It was kind of funny because I, I walked in and I said to the guy, and I'd never knew nothing about the military, nothing about rank. I found out later that the guy I was talking to was a major, but I wouldn't have known that then. I said, listen, uh, I, this came to my roommate, but, and he, grabs the card and he throws it in the trash. He goes, that's great. Grabs my arm, starts dragging me back to his lair. Uh, Grab my arm. He's like, Hey, do you work out? I'm like, well, I play a lot of basketball. Anyway, this guy was the recruiter for the ROC department. And I just bumped in the exact right guy. And uh, you know, I, 
I found myself at Fort Knox six weeks later going through basic training because I didn't do the first two years of ROTC. And uh, boom, I was in the Army. So that's how that happened. My intent was to do the four years I owed for that two-year scholarship. Uh, I ended up doing nine. You know, I liked it a lot. Thought about making it a career. Ultimately, I, I was at the halfway point and uh, I wanted to be a lawyer, uh, ultimately. And I thought, well, I can't wait till I'm 40, 40, way over the hill. There's no way I go to law school at 40. So, uh, you know, I got out of the Army at 30 and went to law school. So that's, that's my great patriotic story about how I became a soldier. You know, I, I did it for the money. But uh, <laughs> that, that feeling really to only lasted a very short period of time. It, it, it wasn't long after I was at Fort Knox at basic training that I realized that uh, I really did love being a soldier. And I got swept up in it almost, almost from the very start. And, uh, and, and might have made a career of it had I not been attracted to being a lawyer want always wanted to do that so yeah that's it and, and and that was the the first time you had considered going into into the military was at that oh. point you saw it, or was that something you'd had in your mind throughout high school i think it always attracted me you know like i liked to watch uh movies about war. i'd read a lot of books about uh the military you know so i was interested in it uh but i had no i, I was raised in connecticut you know, uh, I had no real contact with it. Right. Uh, so, it, you know, I, it, it just wasn't something that was uh, presented to me as an option along the way or, or was ever discussed. You know, I didn't know anybody. Uh, although, ironically, my high school girlfriend went to West Point. She didn't last very long, but she went to West Point. I went out and visited her one time. Didn't think it was the kind of thing I would ever do. Uh, but really that was the only contact I, I had with it. So in that moment where I made that decision, it was a pretty much a snap, snap decision to do that. It hadn't been something that I had been thinking about for any period of time. Right. And then you mentioned having the, the four years that you had to do, but it was somewhere between years four and five, you, you made the switch to, to go into the special forces. Yep. About right? that, about that time. Yeah. So what what led to making that change? Because it's one thing to say, yes, this is this is something I love. I want to stay in it. I want to do more than four years. It's a completely different uh, world to say I want to go into the special forces. Sure. Yeah, because I could have gotten out uh, in September of 1989, which is uh, really shortly after the, the Berlin Wall fell. So, you know, Cold War was over. We had won the war. Uh, I happened to be stationed in Germany when the wall came down. So I remember that very clearly. And, uh, but I really kind of, I liked what I had, had done in the infantry, but I was a little bit addicted to um, hardship, to obstacles, to adversity. So uh, I, you know, when I first talked to that recruiter and he explained all the things you could do in the army, he's pretty slick guys. Like, what do you see yourself doing? And then at that point I, I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really want, I don't see myself as really in the trenches or anything. And he said, well, you can be a ordinance officer and move all the ammunition to the front. You could be a, you know, you could be a quartermaster and make sure that we're all, you know, you start naming all these kind of support branches. And I said, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. And the way he sold me on it, like, you know, you're be a long way from the battlefield and you, you never would have to, you know, spend a night outdoors, you know, uh, all that stuff. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Well, I'll tell you what, but once I got around infantrymen, uh, I wanted to be like them. And a big part of it was, uh, if you volunteered for something difficult, all these guys you respected would just affirm you. It's like, you know, so the first point in time I had to do that was when they, you picked your, the branch you wanted, and, uh, almost everybody who could pass the eye test wanted to be a, a helicopter pilot, you know, and then second might've been military intelligence. Cause it sounded sexy or something. And I said, uh, infantry, armor, uh, field artillery, and air defense artillery, four combat arms. Those were my four choices. And I turned that card in, and the men at the, the officers at the ROTC, ROTC department in college, they just, man, that's great. You know, you're going to be a real soldier. And that sense of affirmation really drove me. So uh, first place, they send you in the infantry. I mean, if you pick infantry number one, they're going, you're going to get it. It's the biggest branch in the army and they need people to do it. And they sent me down to Fort Benning and got down there. And I just, if they asked you to do something hard, 
I'd raise my hand because I'd look around at the other guys that I admired, you know, the other lieutenants. They raised their hand, so I raised my hand. Uh, so I went to airborne school and I went to ranger school. You know, I did these hard things. When you graduated from something hard, you know, you had this great feeling about yourself. Uh, they let you sew something on your uniform, all that good stuff. I, I was addicted to that. So when I was out in the infantry uh, as a real soldier, not in the schoolhouse, you know, you didn't always have that opportunity to get that. And right at that moment, they opened up special forces as what they call a branch. So up at that point, it had been kind of an extra thing you did. It wasn't very professionalized. But for a lot of reasons, uh, by the end of the 80s, special forces was seen something that really needed this. Delta and special forces were kind of growing. So they started recruiting for that. You know, and I, immediately I just wanted to volunteer for that. Uh, I knew I wanted one more, at least one more hard thing. Uh, so that's why, that's why I jumped from the infantry to special forces, really, because I thought it would be harder. And I would get affirmation from men that I admired. I wish I had a better reason. Uh, but that really is the true reason. I've realized, I don't know if I knew that at the moment, but in retrospect, I, I realized that that was why I did it. Right. Yeah. And, and you were looking for that, right? For that additional hardship, that additional challenge. What yeah. were, what were some of the actual differences between what you thought it was going to be, whether it's people, procedures, anything like that? What were some of those differences? About what I expected and what it turned no, out. No, from from the being in the army, being in the infantry, to oh, then oh, making okay. the jump to the special right. forces. Biggest thing is, in the infantry, uh, there's a much bigger gap between the enlisted men, you know, the the, sold, the privates and the sergeants, on the one hand, and the officers on the other. So I was an officer, and for instance, my first job in the infantry was as a platoon leader. I was the only officer in a platoon. I had thirty men five or six NCOs, sergeants, and the rest were privates or specialists or whatever, but enlisted guys. So um, they weren't, I would say, super friendly to me. I mean, I was of a different status. Uh, they weren't rude or anything. You know, they followed my orders, uh, but they uh, there was a separation between us. They called me sir. I called them rank and last name. Uh, we weren't friends. We didn't socialize except in a very formal way. Um, and uh, it was structured in that way. Um, whereas the special forces, uh, it's very small. You have 11 enlisted guys, but they're all senior non-commissioned officers and you're an officer. But they don't see a big gap in the two, between the two. Uh, if you let them, you shouldn't. But if you let them, they'll call you by your first name. Uh, they're happy to have you call them by their first name, but I wouldn't recommend that. I'm, I'm not certain it's that way always, but uh, you're off with those 11 guys. Often it's just you 12 guys. So as an officer, you don't have anybody else to talk to. I mean, those are the guys that you're, you're socializing with them more. Uh, you're spending a lot more time around them uh, and they are uh, far more friendly than in the infantry, far more, there's far more uh, camaraderie. Uh, they also tend to be all older than you. So I was 26 or so when I became a special forces detachment commander, and I was the youngest guy in my team. Whereas in the infantry, you know, the NCOs were older than me, but all the privates were younger than me or my age. So infantry, distant, not super friendly, uh, compliant. Uh, special forces, very friendly, much closer. Uh, here's the funny part. In the infantry, there's no doubt in their mind, the enlisted men mind and the NCOs, what is it you do as an officer and the fact that they need you? They, 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 they recognize that. Uh, you have a specific role to play as a platoon leader, as an officer or a company commander or a company executive officer. Uh, and they expect you to play that and they recognize that they need you to do that. You've been trained to do something different uh, from them. And uh, you're the only guy with a college degree and it's, it's, it, it makes a difference. Uh, whereas in special forces, they don't think they need you at all. They're friendly as heck with you, <laughs> you know, uh, but they don't think they need you because they're all very highly trained. They're senior guys. They think they can do your job. Um, and you have to prove it to them that uh, what you do is integral to what they do and you, and you have to prove it to me. Basically, you're with them for about 18 months or two years. And uh, there's an expression called being a mascot. 
they're perfectly willing to let you in special forces be a mascot, just a guy with a green beret, a guy who's there. Uh, they, as long as you don't get him in trouble, you know, that's fine. Uh, they think, uh, but what I found was after a while that they really do need you. There is something that you do. And despite the fact that these guys were all highly trained, you just had to find a way to do it uh, in a leadership scenario that's much more challenging because you're closer to being peers. And I think anybody who's been in different leadership positions can tell you it's far harder to lead your peers than it is to lead your subordinate, pure subordinates, far harder because you, you, you can't just give them orders. They're not going to follow them. They'll follow them to the letter, but they're not going to take initiative and, and uh, value what you do unless you earn that respect by being, uh, being excellent at what you do. So that, those would be the two biggest differences I would see yeah. between being an officer in the infantry and an officer in special forces. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I appreciate you sharing. So we have a ton that we want to get into. So I think the last question that I'll ask, at least on the military, till we, till we move on is what were some of the lessons that you learned in the military that you still carry with you today? Ah, well, that we could do five podcasts on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm going to take the most important one uh, because it's also the backbone of, of an F3 lesson, which is to, uh, as a leader, which is to always uh, take the blame and pass the praise. Take blame, pass praise, or pass praise, take blame, any way you want to put it. Uh, so this was taught to me in ROTC in a classroom classroom instruction written on the wall, tested on it, uh, essentially means what it sounds like. If something goes wrong in the unit of which you are responsible, so I was a platoon leader, so my platoon or my detachment, when I was a detachment commander, if some, if we failed to accomplish something, there was a failure, the blame for that failure rested solely upon me as a matter of course. Now, in reality, it might have been a failure, somebody beneath me, whatever, but that didn't matter. If Whoever my superior was asked me, uh, Lieutenant or Captain Redding, why did your platoon and or attachment fail to do this or that? The answer is I failed. I failed. The blame for that stops with me. Kind of the Harry Truman buck stops here kind of idea. Now, the inverse, the second or the second half of that lesson is to pass the praise, which is if your platoon or company, whatever it is that you're responsible for, happens to do a good thing or a notable thing, not just performance mission, but, but do the right thing. And somebody says to you, uh, congratulations, you pass that straight on to your subordinates to say, uh, that's the work of Sergeant Jones and Private Smith. And uh, you pass that straight on and say, without those men, this could never have happened. Now, this probably seems pretty simple and straightforward and obvious when you write it on the board and you're sitting in a classroom. Uh, but it's completely counterintuitive to human nature. None of us wants to accept blame for that, which we believe is somebody else's fault. And none of us wants to pass praise for that, which we believe we achieve. It's completely counterintuitive and uh, almost impossible to do unless you learn it in the schoolhouse, right? Then you watch someone else do it very well. You know, uh, you're apprenticed, apprenticed by someone who is a master at it. You're given an opportunity to do it for yourself. And then this, this is the hard part. You fail at it. Because uh, if you're under stress, what we like to say uh, in periods of high stress and limited visibility uh, and tempers are short, and uh, there's fear involved. Um, it's very difficult to remember what was written on the whiteboard when you were, uh, or in my case, the chalkboard when you were a young student. It's very difficult to put into practice what you saw um, a senior leader do with great grace and you fail. And then from that failure is born the determination to never fail in that way again. Because if you do, you never, no one will ever trust you as a military officer. If your subordinates see you take praise and pass the blame, you have lost them forever. Um, so screwing it up in a small way, at a small level, and getting that beaten into you uh, is the most important lesson I learned in my nine years in the military because I failed at it. Um, but I, after I failed at it in a 
in a horribly uh, infamous way, I never, I never messed it up again. Uh, I never made that mistake again. And I carried that lesson uh, out into the civilian world, into my career as a, as a lawyer. And uh, I have learned that it's just as important and effective, at least in lawyering. You know, I don't know about uh, what other men might do for a living, but at least in lawyering, it's, it's, it's important uh, and integral into being an effective uh, litigator and being an effective father and being an effective husband and an effective friend. And if you can pull that off because you've learned it uh, the hard way and you can do it consistently, then you've probably gotten about 25 or 30 percent of what it takes to be a virtuous leader, in my opinion. So I want to take the transition from, okay, you decided, all right, I don't want to go and um, go into law school at age 40. So, <laughs> oh, oh, man. Hey, man, you know, that's that's how old Moses went, was when he got shipped out of Egypt. So, yeah. you, know, right. you know, he was that's just right. starting right. another 40 years of, right. of basic I mean, training. And I didn't have to beat an Egyptian to death, right? Right. <laughs> But I'm curious. So you said that it sounded like you wanted to be an attorney earlier on. Um, and that dream is still in you. You go to law school and there are all kinds of branches, if you will, in the legal profession that you can take as well. You can be a corporate attorney. You can be, you know, IP attorney. You can be a litigator, which, uh, you know, is like. You, you better have some fight, you know? <laughs> so um, I'm curious, before you went into the army and then special forces, would you have thought of going into litigation or did your experience in the military go, yeah, litigation's where I'm going. I'm curious about that part of the, your journey. Yeah, I don't think I had that thought through. Uh, in fact, I had so... The only thing I knew less about than soldiering about was lawyering. And I, I can't really tell you exactly why I had it in my mind that I wanted to be a, a lawyer. Part of it was people told me that in school. Teachers told me that, that I seemed to have the, the skills that they associated with, with being a lawyer. Uh, I took a class in undergraduate business law or something, and I really liked the teacher who was a lawyer. He put in perspective what it is a lawyer did in a way that I kind of got it. I was like, okay, yeah, uh, you know, uh, and then there's the things I can't do starting with math. Uh, so those that there's the, one, all that many other things I could do. I don't really have a good head for business. So, uh, I just, I guess I just had it. There wasn't any one thing that said, this is, this is why I want to do that. Um, there is one movie though, that I watched when I was young that influenced me greatly. Um, and it's, uh, you don't, it's not, I don't think many lawyers would cite this as a, as a movie that inspired them to be a lawyer, but the movie uh, was called, I think Judgment at Nuremberg is what it was called. Um, but it, whatever it was called, it, it was about the trial of Nazi war criminals, the trials of Nazi war criminals after the end of World War II. And uh, the Americans, and the allies put together this tribunal and uh, they tried the, the major criminals and uh, decided either to put them to death or put them in prison. That's what Spandau prison was, if you recall that from the Cold War. But there was one particular and a fictional character is played by Burt Lancaster. And he hadn't been a uh, military figure in Nazi Germany. He had been a judge. And before the Nazi period, he'd been widely respected, but he became Nazified as Hitler rose, and uh, he was responsible for several things, but the thing he was primarily um, tried for was ruling that um, ruling in cases where the Nazis would say uh, someone should be sterilized, because the Nazis well, were into this eugenics thing, and they would say, you know, this guy needs to be sterilized, and uh, because he's a moron, which is a technical term for somebody of low IQ. This is just weird, but the, the um, guy who testified against him in the movie is named Montgomery Clift, who was a, a leading actor in the 50s and 60s, 
playing a German who had been sterilized because the, this judge, Burt Lancaster, determined that he uh, was too dumb, really, to, to procreate, uh, which is a horrific thing, right? And um, the, on, on the direct examination, Montgomery Cliff did fine. It was the cross-examination of this witness by the guy who played the attorney for the judge uh, that captured my attention because it was, he did it, he was doing it on behalf of someone who was loathsome. And he was cross-examining someone uh, who was a victim of a horrible crime. And uh, he wasn't easy on him, uh, but he did it in a way that was winsome enough that by the end of it, you were like, well, this guy is a moron, technical sense. He didn't deserve to be sterilized, but that was the law of the day. The judge applied the law of the day, and that was his argument. And uh, I wish I could remember the name of the actor play, played that lawyer. But he makes a closing argument to, the, to Spencer Tracy as the chief of the tribunal. Doesn't persuade him, but the thing that I took away from that was how lawyers, what an important role they play in society. Because nobody, this, this judge, you're like, he doesn't deserve a fair trial. They ought to take him back out there and hang him from the, from the rafters. I mean, he's a horrible person. He's a, he gave in to the Nazi hordes. You know, he, he, he it just, he's a horrible guy. And here's this lawyer coming up with this way to defend him. I picked out how to do it. And, and I mean, I'm like a kid in high school watching that and saying, I don't know why that appeals to me. But what I've come to realize now that I'm practicing law in 20, after 25 years, that this is what a litigator does when he's at his very best. Anybody can try a case where the facts are obvious and the jury's emotions are with you. But to try a case where the facts bear two meanings, to draw out that second less obvious meaning, to make judge and jury question their predispositions and set aside their biases just long enough to make a, to get a just result. I've realized in retrospect that that's what I was born to do. I don't know why. So uh, Gary, your earlier question, you know, be an asset. What do I want to, what do I want people to say about me professionally? I had a jury once in a case where I, I won the case. I didn't have quite have a Nazi judge, but I had a, a very unattractive client. And the jury, after, after the trial, you get a chance to talk to the jury, but it's consensual. They don't have to. And they almost always will because they want to know. They're very curious. They've been there for days on end. And this one case, 11 jurors just walked right by me, wouldn't stop and talk. And one of them stopped and said, we hated to do what we did because we hated your client. But you were right. And there was nothing we could do about it. And he turned around and walked away. And that was the highest praise I've ever received as a lawyer. <laughs> and I mean, that sounds crazy, right? Uh, that sounds crazy. Um, but that's, I guess, my hard wiring. And that's what I've ended up spending my, this, this, my, the second career of my life doing. Well, that goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Of being addicted to hardships and obstacles. It's, yeah, I get you're right. Right. You're not looking for the easy fight with everything. Right. Right. You're you're willing to do the hard work that other people aren't willing to do. I, you know, and I, I don't want it to sound too, um, uh, you know, like high sounding, you know, uh, altruistic. I just think that's me. That's my hardwiring. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm hardwired to seek out adversity and obstacles. I tend to take the harder path. My wife says, in life, like, uh, you know, a golf or tennis tournament, I insist on playing from the loser's bracket. I, that just is where I'm, I feel like I'm best suited. So it's just a hard one. Um, the blessing in my life is that those two decisions I made, because the first one decision I made to be uh, a soldier was like that. And the decision I made to go to law school was equally as uh, made in a very short period of time. 
uh, by happenstance, something outside of my control. I just uh, my branch manager called me up in 2000 or 1993, right at the end of the year and said, look, you know, we're, we're getting rid of 10% or 20% of the army. The cold war's over. You know, blah, blah, blah. Like you're on the brink. You're not going to get promoted here or there. He's like, we're going to, we'll pay you some money to get out now, but you got to decide in 24 hours. And uh, he had been my unit before. He's in the Pentagon, but I knew him very well. And I said, he goes, I'm telling you the truth, man. It's not just, you know, we're not just looking for numbers. And I said, I know you're telling me the truth. And he said, well, you want me to call you back tomorrow? And I said, you don't need to. I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll get out. I'll go to law school. And I, I got out not knowing this. I had three days to take the LSAT, the last LSAT for the year. No, I just went and took it. That was so both both my decision to go in the army and my decision to go to law school were both heavily predicated on the Cold War. On the front end, the fact that Reagan's building up the military and they're you know giving away scholarships to knuckleheads like me. On the back end, the end of the Cold War, they don't need me anymore. And uh, they gave me some money to get out, which I used to, to pay for law school. So two, <laughs> two decisions made in 30 seconds, you know, uh, a little more than 30 seconds, but very quickly. And those ended up being great because I, I learned everything. I learned so much being a soldier. I wasn't a great soldier uh, by any stretch of imagination, but I learned a tremendous lot about leadership. And then uh, actually my life's work is to be a lawyer. And that decision was more or less made for me. So I, I just look at that, call it destiny, karma, God, whatever you want. I, I'm a Christian. So I, I say God's in charge, not me. So he led me that way. Uh, but that that's how it ended up happening. So I, I consider that to be a great blessing. So I'm going to jump in. I may, Ben, if you want to backtrack into that question that you, you probably have on your mind, <laughs> we can. I've got a, I've got a couple. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I know we could do three episodes just on F3. And so I want you to talk about what it is, what it stands for. But my gut is, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but my gut is that while you say going into the army was kind of, kind of serendipitous, it just happened, exiting the army when it did kind of the same sort of thing. My gut is that there was something percolating a little bit more deliberately and a little bit more prolonged in you to launch F3. I'd like to hear about like what stirred you to do this? Because it wasn't like you had one more thing that you needed to do. <laughs> but um, I want to hear about the impetus. Tell the listeners that are not familiar with F3, F3 Nation, go, you know, Google it. But um, talk about that. Sure. So F3 stands for Fitness, Fellowship and Faith. And it's a men's small uh, workout group or a network of men's small workout groups. And our mission is to plant these groups in order to invigorate male community leadership. So uh, the workout groups vary in size. They're all over. I think we're in 48 states. I think we're in seven nations, something like that. Uh, they're all locally led. We charge no man to work out. Every man is welcome. We do them outdoors, rain, shine, cold, heat, doesn't matter. Uh, there's no specific length they have to last. There's no specific thing they have to do. Uh, but they have to be led by men in the group, not by personal trainers or certified professionals or any way. And the only other requirement is that you end them in what we call a circle of trust, which just means you form a circle, you count how many guys you had. Each man says his name, what we call your hospital name. That's the name your parents gave you before you found out what your mission was, your age, uh, and then your F3 name, because every man gets a name when he shows up. Uh, at the workout. So you show up as an FNG, what we call an FNG, and that just means friendly new guy. We ask you some questions and then we give you a nickname. So we had a guy show up today at uh, the Shore Card workout here in Charlotte, which starts in the parking garage of my, uh, where I work, where my law office is right downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. And I'd never seen him before. Another guy brought him um, and uh, he jumps into the workout. We just do it for 45 minutes. We get to the end. He had said to me, I asked him, what's your hospital name? And he was breathing hard. He goes, I don't have one. So I was calling him no name the whole workout. Uh, he misunderstood what I was asking him. 
So, you know, we go through the whole thing. The end turned out he's 26 years old. He's from Buffalo, New York. He's an accountant, came down for his, to take a job, uh, works in Mooresville, a bunch of stuff. And uh, so we named him Prince because Prince was the, uh, the artist formerly known as Prince, had no name. So uh, <laughs> that's why it happens, right? A lot of names are mistakes. A lot of the names are just somebody shouts something out. My name is Judge Dredd because my, my hospital name is Dave Redding, D. Red. And because uh, I'm a lawyer, they called me Judge Dredd. And after the third or fourth week, they were like, ah, well, you don't have a judicial temperament. So you just dread. So that's, that's what my nickname is. Uh, so that's F3. You can participate as much as you want. The fitness is the magnet. Pretty easy to get a guy uh, to come work out with you. Let's uh, say join a Bible study or something. I mean, or even get a cup of coffee. You can't really walk up to a stranger and say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee. It's like, you're selling insurance or something, but whatever it is, I, I'm not interested. Uh, but you can be in an elevator with a guy and he can look at you and go, man, you look like you're in good shape. Uh, what do you do? I mean, you got a Peloton. You're like, no, I don't even go to a gym. I work out with this free, I work out for free with a bunch of guys out in a parking lot behind a Walmart, you know? And uh, a lot of guys are like, well, I want to do that. I mean, it takes like three sentences. I mean, it's a really easy way to get men together. So that fitness is the magnet. I mean, you're, you know, you, you watch uh, Fox News throughout the evening. All you're going to see is commercials about, you know, uh, drugs and, you know, workout equipment. You know, the idea of being physically fit and taking care of bodies on every person's mind. Uh, so that, that one's an easy one. Magnet, fitness. Second F, fellowship. We call that the glue. And uh, how that works is you come out and work out first time is very hard. You don't understand what anybody's saying. Everybody's got a nickname. We got, you know, we've got a different name for everything. And half the time, new guy throws up, you know, uh, because they're hard, you know, workouts are hard. Uh, and if he's not been working out, you know, he, he doesn't feel all that great. Anyway, uh, after a few weeks, if he sticks at it, he suddenly got his breath and all these guys are great. And, oh, he's got buddies for the first time and he doesn't want to quit, even if he doesn't want to work out anymore, Right. So that's why the second F fellowship is a glue. Now the third F faith is not a particular denomination or a particularized worldview. It's just a belief in something outside yourself. You don't think you're king of the world. However, it happens in your uh, worldview. And I said, I'm a Christian. So the way I think it happens is through Jesus Christ. If you're a Jewish guy, obviously not. Muslim, obviously not. Uh, we don't really care if you're a Druid and you know, you go to Stonehenge every two years at midsummer's eve and dance amongst the bricks or rocks doesn't matter to us as long as there's something you believe is outside of you because a man who thinks he's king of the world is by definition a jackass and i know that because i was one until i was 43 years old so that's what the f is and the third f is faith and we call that the dynamite because you take that same guy who showed up fat and un unfriended threw up got in shape suddenly he loves all these guys two or three months into it he goes I need to tell my brother-in-law about this. Or there's this guy who works in the next cubicle. I got I to gotta get him out of here. Or more uh, dynamically, um, I've been driving across town. There's all these guys in my neighborhood. I want to start one of these in my neighborhood. So we have uh, a team of guys that do nothing. Now, this is 11 years into it, but field requests from distant locations to help them out. You know, I'm in, uh, I'm in you know, Fort Triswell, North Carolina. There's no workout up here. What do I do? Help me. You know, I'm in Nome, Alaska. There's no workout. Where's the nearest workout? We all the time. We get guys who have found us on the internet somehow who want to start this thing. That's the dynamite. That's the faith because it's that you want to do something for somebody else. That's part of it is drawing more men in. The other part is you just start looking to do good deeds in your community. Before you know it, you're handing out pizza down at the homeless shelter. You're giving blood. You know, you're coaching soccer. All these things like, you thought you couldn't do, uh, but you were really just making excuses because you were unhappy. Uh, those three holes in a man's heart, what we call the bowling ball grip. First one is inconsistent fitness, you're up, you're down. Second one, friendlessness, loneliness, male loneliness. Third one, lack of purpose. F3 fills those holes with faith, fellowship, fitness, fellowship, and faith, and puts you back in motion again. So where you once were a bowling ball, sitting dusty and inert in the closet, hadn't seen a, a bowling lane for 10 years, you're now in motion, you're rolling, knocking down pens. And that's what men are made to do, right? I mean, we're made to feel that way. So F3 is designed, kind of reverse engineered, I'd say, because that 
everything I'm telling you is after the fact. I mean, we did not write all this stuff down or whiteboard it and say, this is it. Literally what we did on 1-1-2011 is invite 80 or so guys to come work out with us at AG Medical School, AG Middle School in in Charlotte, North Carolina, and say, come out at seven o'clock, it's Saturday, first day of the year. We're going to work out uh, together. Didn't really tell them why. Uh, just said, we're going to do this together. Uh, and we thought we'd get five or six guys and we got 30. And I said, Hey, that's great. It's a new year's resolution. We got 30 guys. Let's, you know, not expect that next week, next Saturday, we had 33 and we've never had less than that. You know, by March, we had to break out, have second groups, third groups, you know, by, uh, August we're in Raleigh, you know, by December we're in Atlanta and that just, Everything we've done afterwards was to explain what we're doing. So the explanation I just gave you is kind of us sitting back, watching all this happen and going, you know, even in AMF3, it wasn't called that. We didn't really call it anything. And, you know, a couple of months into a guy goes, you know, there's like three F's to this thing. We're like, whoa, tell me more, you know. And uh, that's how it's all developed. And we just wrote it down over time and uh, to, to produce what F3 is. So, Gary, yeah, I would love to say, that I took all my military training and legal acumen and got a bunch of guys in a room and pitched this ID to them. And we just came and said, here's our plan of action. But, you know, we really thought a great success by the end of 2011 to have 10 consistent guys coming out once a week. And we had 60 coming out four times a week. And then the next year, you know, exponential from there. The only thing we've ever really done is hang on and try to stay ahead of guys and meet their needs. That's what I meant about being an asset, right? Go where they were, write stuff out that they could use, produce playbooks, uh, give them, you know, a lexicon they could use, teach them how to lead. And uh, that's, that's what we try to do. And we call that staying 43 feet ahead on building a road, 43 ahead, feet, feet ahead of the men driving on it uh, is the expression we use for that. So, well, David, talk a little bit more. I want to dive deeper into the why because there are plenty of people interested in fitness, plenty of people that are looking for fellowship, plenty of people have faith. And it's probably safe to say there's also plenty of people that have more free time than you did at the time. So why, why go through the efforts of, of starting this, trying to be the person to organize this? So uh, I told you that I was a jackass until I was 43. I turned 43 in 2007. And uh, maybe a month and a half before my birthday, uh, I gave my life to Christ. Um, it was the culmination of a, lo- a long series of personal failures on my part. I was a fat, lonely, uh, faithless man, um, an effective but inconsistent lawyer, and certainly not uh, a great husband and father. Um, and I was what we've come to call a sad clown a man who is uh, joyless on the inside, pretends to be happy on the outside because he thinks that's what the world demands of him, who kind of walks through life waiting to die, hoping that his last check clears and he can leave this mortal uh, veil having taken not too much more out of it than it was given to him, right? Kind of even. And uh, I thought that was me. I thought I was alone in that. Uh, I'd reached that point uh, in the 13 years between exiting the military and that point where I made that decision, uh, gradually, but the, what had happened to me was, you know, when I was a soldier at Fort Bragg, that's where I was at the end of my career. I always had a mission. I always had purpose. I was always around other men, uh, who were great leaders. I thought that that was all me, or at least I was part of that. But what I really was, was like a computer monitor that has to be plugged in the internet. I was nothing when you unplugged me from the army. So, you know, I left Fort Bragg on a Friday in late August of 1994, drove up to Winston-Salem, which is only 120 miles away to start law school that following Monday. But I might've been going from one end of the earth to the other. I went from a, you know, a, from, from leadership soup, you know, just like jambalaya leadership to uh, law school, which anybody's ever gone through law school will tell you, it's the, there's, it's the least leadership culture you're going to find. There's no more every man for himself, sad clown uh, place than law school. And Wake Forest University is no different than any of them. So I get there weighing 180 pounds, 
you know, I'm a 30 year old Green Beret, you know, thinking this is all me and I'm going to blast through law school. By Christmas, I weighed 220 pounds. Uh, and I was drinking too much, just grinding out, you know, getting nothing out of my experience other than learning the law. And uh, from that point, I kind of caught myself, lost a bunch of weight, like, like kind of returned myself a little bit to the right path, but then would sink back down again. So my life was like that for 13 years. And uh, I realized now looking back at it, I guess I realized this by 97 was that I couldn't tell you why I was doing anything that I was doing. You know, when I was in the military, you'd always get a mission, task and purpose, task being what you do, purpose being why you did it. It was very clear uh, what was expected of you and uh, to be missional all the time, going through some hard school or accomplishing some real world mission or training mission. You're always doing something for a particular reason. If somebody said, why are you here? What are you doing? I could answer that question. I've been answering. I've been answering that question for nine years. Suddenly, the first day of law school. I couldn't really answer it. You know, what are you doing? I'm going to law school. Why? To be a lawyer. Okay. What? Okay. When you're a lawyer, what are you doing? I'm being a lawyer. Why? To make money doesn't sound quite right, but that's true. Uh, to achieve justice sounds a little soft. I don't know. Uh, but it, that was kind of what my life was like. I couldn't really, I, I couldn't recapture that sense of purposefulness that I had enjoyed as a soldier. Um, I, again, I thought that was me. Uh, what I've come to find out through F3 is that's everybody. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's the life of man outside the military is some other very purposeful thing. You have to find a way to make it personal, purposeful. You know, so if you ask me now what, you know, what I'm doing as a lawyer, I'll tell you simply, I'm preparing for trial. And, and if the answer is, and, and say, why are you doing it? I do it to resolve disputes. That's my job. I resolve disputes. I get ready for trial, prepare for trial. Sometimes we try it. Sometimes we don't along the way you settle it. But I resolve disputes. Two men or two corporations have an intractable legal difference. They can't resolve it themselves and capable of doing so. They need a process by which that resolution can be effectuated. And I am an agent of that process. That's what trying a case is. That's what living litigation is. I'm, I'm very clear about, I could not have told you that in 1997 or 2007. I, I had to relearn this idea of being missional in everything I do. You know, why get married? I, I'll answer that question. You get married so you can provide a safe and wholesome place to raise children, my belief. But I know that's why I know what I'm doing. Why are you doing this? Why are you driving your kids to Disney World? Why, why go there? Well, be, because people take their kids? No. Because that's part of applying a safe and wholesome place for my children so they can have that enjoyment, have that experience, be with us. That sense of purposefulness I rediscovered after I became a Christian because there was a purpose in Christianity. I totally understood it. Make disciples of all nations. That's why you're here. Why are you in church? So I can be a better disciple, not just so my neighbor can see me, not just so I can, you know, not feel so guilty. I have a mission to be better at that. That's how I'll be assessed at the end of, at the end, you know, in the military every year you get an OER. It's a, you know, it's an evaluation report, an officer's evaluation report. It tells you how you did, tells you how ethical you were, tells you if you exceeded expectations. I believe my belief system at the end of my life, I'm going to get an OER from God. I guess Jesus. I'm going to be at his feet and he's going to tell me whether I, how I did while I was in the body. I'll account for my actions, good and bad. Knowing that helps me be purposeful in my life. It all fits together in my mind. Now, again, I'm not trying to insult anybody who's not a Christian or has a different worldview. That's, that's, my, that's how I live. Uh, and that reinvigorated me in my mid-40s. So 97, I come to Christ. By 99, I was bound and determined to share that sense of reinvigoration with other men. Just like the faith is the dynamite, man. I said, like, okay. I suddenly realize it's not just me. I'm looking around. There's other fat, unhappy men rolling around. You know, I tried for a while to get guys to, you know, uh, come to a Bible study with me or whatever. And guys were like, thanks. Got enough of that in my life. You're not a pastor anyway. Uh, but 
you know, I found that when I uh, asked guys to work out with me, they were quite likely to do so. I was in good shape. I had been in the military. They respected that. Uh, and I, I think I'm pretty good at leading a workout. So that was a way to draw men to me. So that was, for me, that was my motivation. I don't think there was my co-founder's motivation. And it doesn't really matter. His motivation was to help men be better men and to be ha happier. And so, you know, all works out together. Uh, but that was why uh, on one one eleven I started to give away uh, my time and my efforts and my energy uh, to invigorate male community leadership because I believe that that is what I've been called to do uh, outside my work as a, a lawyer and a father and a husband. My my avocation, not my vocation, but my avocation, what my um, spiritual calling is, is to be that man for other men to help them come together to help them accelerate to sharpen them um and i and and pursuing that is what's driven me uh in this organization for the last 11 years almost 12 years so the cool thing like one of the reasons that we have this podcast is to tell stories allow people like you to tell their stories but especially entrepreneurs ripple makers positive ripple makers in our community in Charlotte, North Carolina. We've had people wanted to be on this thing outside of Charlotte. And we basically said, unless you're really tied into Charlotte somehow, thanks, but no, because we want to keep building that connectivity here. And we know that people in Australia who listen to this regularly, they're inspired as well. But for anybody outside of this, and even those in Charlotte may not realize the reach. So it started 11 years ago. As of today, which it'll change tomorrow, you have 3,194 peer-led workouts across the globe, 3,000 plus. And it keeps growing, but, but I'll tell you one thing that has been interesting because I get to lead one of the afternoon workouts because I'm not a 5.30 a.m. guy. Sorry, but I go to bed at midnight, so I can't do that. But... Sunday afternoon, I got headlocked into coming about five years ago uh, by a good friend. His nickname's Gap because he works for a competitive CPA firm. But he's not and, an accountant. When I named him, he's not an accountant. Yeah, I don't. I'm not an accountant. I said I don't care. Neither am I. Yeah. Um, but I go to mine and I get the nickname Jayhawk or Rock Chalk, even though I went to Kansas State, and I'm like. Like, I thought this was a Christian. This is this is tormenting me. And they, they're like, well, if you want a worse name, and they gave me a couple examples, which I won't repeat on the air. I'm like, okay, got it. So I'm rock child. But we've got regularly four guys that are over 70, one guy that's 80, and he crushes everybody in the ab workout. His nickname is Money because he's from a certain part of Connecticut. And, and his uh, son, who is a collegiate swimmer, I think at Auburn or Alabama, probably Alabama, but um, his nickname is Schilling. Um, but we, down, from, down from 80, and actually Horse is older than that. So Horse is the oldest one, I think, in Charlotte. I think he's 81 or 82. Uh, down to in their 20s that are regularly there. And Money has said to me, he goes, Gary, I love this group. And money has been through cancer treatment. He's had a, uh, you know, couple vertebrae fused. He has still come and he still comes. And uh, I said, money, you're the one that inspires us. I, when I'm calling the workout, I call on money to do at least five minutes of ab workouts because I love hearing the 20 somethings scream and watch their, their feet hit the ground while he's still holding them. <laughs> but it's, it's super inspiring. I said, you're not, the, you're not holding us back. You're inspiring us money, but there's something that you've tapped into David that I think is really powerful. And this notion that we're not alone. Um, we don't have to walk this life alone. Everybody has an interesting story. Everybody does. And uh, that's why we call this podcast anything but typical. We all have a unique thumbprint by design. And, and your thumbprint, you didn't seek, you know, it's not the David Redding workout club. It, you know, you, you take a very backseat approach to, you know, F3 as far as the accolades. And it's, it's not a, 
a big money-making enterprise. It, it's a peer-led, it's a nonprofit. You don't pay a dime to go to these things, but man, I'll tell you what you get back is amazing. So I just want to say thank you for being such a positive ripple maker in our community and now throughout the world. So that's what I'll say about that. I know you've got more stuff there, Ben. Yes. Honored, Rock Chalk. Honored by your words. So I want to wrap it up, at least for me, uh, with this question, David, and, and it kind of takes a lot of what we've been talking about. But with everything that you've had going on and as you've progressed in your life, right, you just keep stacking more and more things on. How do you stay efficient with your time while having these multiple passions, these multiple responsibilities, these things that mean a lot to you? Uh, that's an easy one, actually. Uh, I am the world's most prolific delegator, uh, which is something I, another great thing. I probably, if, after pass the praise and take the blame, uh, delegation would be the second most important skill that I learned in the military. Uh, you cannot make it alone. Uh, and I learned that uh, I always had to be training the, my direct subordinate to do my job. And that if my boss was doing his job, he'd be training me to do his job and to learn how to delegate authority, not responsibility, because you, you retain responsibility, but to delegate sufficient authority to an, a subordinate or a group of subordinates to accomplish the mission is the hallmark, uh, in my opinion, of a legacy leader. So a leader is a man who can get people to follow him while he's in the room. You know, he can influence movement while he's there. Uh, and that actually is not that common that someone's able to do that. A good leader is a man who continues to be followed after he's left the room, but only a great leader is followed after he's dead. And the reason why he is followed after he's dead is not because he's George Patton or, you know, something like that. It's because he spent his lifetime pouring everything he knew into the men that uh, were around him. He made sure that they understood the mission, that it was made clear to them. He taught them everything he knew, constantly giving away everything he knows how to do. And then the third thing, which kind of dovetails into your podcast, I believe, if I understand it, is he rewards every example of individual initiative he sees in his subordinates, regardless of the outcome. So uh, men who know the mission, can act in furtherance of the mission outside of direct instructions. That's called being a sua sponte leader without, without direct instructions. But they can only accomplish it if they know how to do it because you've taught them. But they won't try if they try to further the mission outside of direct supervision and you cut them off on the knee at the knees because it fails. If you want to be that kind of leader, the legacy leader, you have to first say, that's great initiative. I'm really glad that you took that initiative. Now let's deal with the outcome because there, you know, there's some downsides, but we'll deal with it and get you better prepared for the next time. I just like the pass the praise thing. It's, it's anti-human nature. I mean, someone acting in your stead who makes a mistake that you're responsible for, man, you just want to chill out. Somebody who does takes uh, some form of initiative, but uh, uh, uses bad judgment in doing so, Man, you just want to you just want to rip them, and you have to discipline yourself as a legacy leader not to do that. You have to absolutely and one hundred percent say first thing out of your mouth is, "Man, took the initiative. That's great. Got we, we can't we can't succeed with that. It's got to be the first thing out of your mouth." And uh, I don't think I'm a great leader. I don't think I'm certainly no George Patton, but I was taught by great leaders who poured this lesson into me and I, I, I am able to replicate what I was taught. So I don't have to be uh, at Gary's workout on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I don't have to be because the lessons that I've learned and I was able to pass on to other guys, they're doing it. So, you know, I was surprised uh, when Gary said we were at 3,100 or something, cause I knew we were over 3,000, but I didn't know we were at 3,100. Uh, and I can take great solace and uh, 
satisfaction from the fact that this little thing we started 11 years ago has spread to like that and had that impact. I, can, I, I And I am greatly satisfied by that. Uh, but I don't for a second think that I had any direct impact on any of that because you don't as a man, you have direct impact on a very small group of people around you. And, but if you pour into them and are, are consistent into that, that has that dynamic effect as what you tell, say 12 men, they each tell 12, well, that's 144 men, right? And now you're seeing how it, how it expands out. Um, and I think that's a lesson I was taught in the military. And I think, I don't think the military made it up. I think they, they took that from, from the, the disciples, the development of the disciples and the spread of Christianity, I believe so. I don't think there's any coincidence in the fact that Special Forces 18 has 12 men and, a, and there was 12 disciples and there's 12 men on the jury. Number 12 is a very significant number. And the reason, the, what I think is significant about it is it's really the maximum amount of men that you can hope to really know and impact directly. Um, but it's also enough men that you can accomplish great things. Whenever you try a case to a jury and they talk to them afterwards and they tell you all the stuff they heard, you're like, each one of these people played a role in this. You know, no fact is missed. I'll have a client say to me, I don't think they understood that. I said, one of them did. One of those 12 people got that or two got that. And they'll share what they got to the other, with the others. Uh, and, and that for me is the key to it, the key to accomplishing things in life and is baked into every dogma. It's what we call a shared leadership team, uh, which, is, which is influenced through combination. And that's how we do everything. There's no one indispensable guy. Graveyards are full of indispensable men. It's a bunch of men who are like-minded and determined to accomplish the overall mission of the organization who are acting without direct control and instruction to further the mission and its purpose. And that has achieved dynamic impact. And I can only say that I am honored uh, to have taken a part in that. I'm, I'm, I receive far more accolades than I deserve for that. And I've learned over the years to just say honored. That's all I can say. I'm honored by that. Uh, because when something tremendous happens, people want to thank somebody. And I'm honored to be the guy they thank, even though I know I don't deserve it. Uh, there's no point in arguing with people, but uh, this uh, podcast, and I, I'm blessed to be on podcast, give me a chance to explain that. Uh, and I deeply and sincerely feel it in my heart. And, uh, and I hope that that's a helpful, um, I guess, framework for men who are in leadership positions, whether it's in your family or in business or wherever you may find yourself. Uh, how is it that I influence all these people by myself? And the answer, of course, is you don't by yourself, man. You yep. don't. You don't. Yeah, it's that, that delegation, that, that ripple effect that Gary talks so much about of you make that direct impact and then that indirect impact has just continued to expand. Exponentially. Yep. Which allows you indirectly to dramatically impact significantly more people than you could ever do yourself personally. Absolutely. Then all you got to do, like I'm at this point, I'm 58 years old. All I got to do is not screw up. You know, all I got, all I have to do is not destroy the, you know, the uh, undeserved image I have with a lot of people. All I got to do is ride the, is ride, is ride the honor. And if I, if, if that's really not very hard to do, um, that's because I've got a lot of accountability and a, a loving wife and a loving family and guys like Gary who love me because um, he doesn't really know me. So let me Danny, my question. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, David. Where, where can we send people? Let the listeners know if they want to check out F3, if they want to check out uh, you as an individual or the law firm, anything like that. So you can look at if you everything F3 is is F3nation.com. And uh, that has grown from this single, single clunky site we started 11 years ago to an amazing resource. So the background on F3, what you need to know before you go to the first workout, uh, it's it's leadership lessons is all on that website. I think it's 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 super helpful. And it'll also direct you to all our local groups. So F3 Nation is kind of the centralized entity for the organization, but there's F3 San Antonio, you know, 
there's F3, uh, for, uh, F3 um, Seattle. I mean, every place that has uh, guys doing F3, they have their own schedule. They decide for themselves when the workouts. But so if you're if you're sitting there in Portland and you're like, oh, I want to go to a workout, where do I look? F3 Portland, just look it up and, and you'll see. Uh, but that would be the place you start for that. For me, professionally, my law firm is called uh, TLG Law, which doesn't, that's nobody's initials. I guess it just means the litigation group or something, but uh, tlglaw.com. You can find the law firm if you, if you have, if you need legal help. And then I have a, uh, a personal website for, um, to collect what I think of as my leadership philosophy to the, to the degree you can call it that called the collisionlearner.com collision learner. And, uh, that's where I put my blog posts about leadership outside of F3. So, uh, that would be three ways I would say, you know, you, if you're, if you're interested in what we're doing or what I've, anything I've said, that'd be a place to, to go and look. And I hope that's helpful to anybody who goes there. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, and sharing. This has been, uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you, David. Honor. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Dred. Thank you, David. Uh, <laughs> your birth name or your hospital name. <laughs> Was it your, do you say your hospital name? Is that what? Hospital name. You never heard that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so I learned something new on this one too. Yeah, that's uh, good. I was in a yeah, uh, group so the other. Much. I was in a group the other day, and it was a, a kid who led it. His name was uh, a QSource group, so a leadership group. This young guy led it. His name was Noah, and he did a great job. And I said at the end of it, I said, "Man, Noah, that's a great job, man. I I, I wish I had a. Wish my parents had given me a biblical name like you have. It's so cool." And he's like. Isn't there a David in the Bible? I was like, oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> they, did. they did, and I forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you again, David. Excellent job. We'll have to have you on for a repeat uh, performance at some point because there's a whole lot of if you, if anybody didn't get it this from this podcast there's an artesian well of wisdom coming out of this guy so thank you again thank you anytime happy to do so